Now, this is a little spoiler alert. Once we finish with our V3 release, which is upcoming in the next two to three weeks, um, we're gonna open source this one as well. So uh, in the end, you will definitely be able just to say, show me all the IPNFTs of this address. Show me all, all the IPNFTs of, of the currently logged in user. Show me the history of those. Um, uh, ungate the content, please. Here's an auth stick or something. This is what you will be able to do uh, using a Molecules SDK without really having to worry that much about Web3 technology. Welcome to the DSI podcast. In this episode, we'll explore the technology behind the IPNFT and its potential for revolutionizing scientific data collection, storage, and sharing. This episode is meant for our technical audience or those curious about the technology behind the IPNFT. If you are non-technical but working in DSI, feel free to share this episode with the developers who are helping you to build. Our special guests, Stefan Adolf, Senior Web3 Engineer at Molecule, and Benji Leibowitz, former Biotech VC and now Product Manager at Molecule, discuss the IPNFT's modularity, fractionization, metadata storage, token standards, content gating, wallets, user experience, and more. They will also talk about how developers can build using the IPNFT and how they can contribute to open source infrastructure at Molecule. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Stefan, Benji, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. For those of you who don't know, Stefan and Benji and I are colleagues um, working here in Berlin and Benji's in Chicago. Let's maybe kick it off with um, you guys telling us and the audience, um, yeah, what is the IPNFT and maybe um, who should use it and yeah, wh why should it? developer or a DSI builder care? Cool. So um, my name is Benji. I'm a product manager at Molecule. Um, I joined in September. It's been uh, an awesome ride so far. Um, and the IPNFT is a mechanism for people to take legal rights in the real world and put them on chain so that, you know, rather than a person holding those rights, you know, have a wallet that holds those rights or maybe a set of wallets. So what becomes very cool about using our protocol is uh, you can basically um, fundraise and have donations toward a project that has rights in the legal, uh, in the real world. Um, so yeah, before, we think this, we think this is very Before you continue, really what's what's with the, the hoodie and the sunglasses? Um, it's like a little bit distracting to be honest. <laughs> for, so for those who are listening on the, um, on the, like Spotify and wherever there's not video or not not on YouTube, um, Stefan and Benji are wearing hoodies um, with the caps on and with sunglasses. We're actually trying is... to to um, <laughs> to win the lookalike contest here because this is how we all look at Molecule Heinrich. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you are the little exception here, but we told you you have to wear sunglasses tonight. Uh, for I forgot mine at home. I'm so sorry, but um, yeah, next time. Yeah, Stefan, if you maybe want to also introduce yourself uh, to the audience, um, yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. So my name is Stefan, Stefan Adolf. I'm actually a native Berliner. I joined Molecule in October. I'm a software developer for the last 20 years, so I'm I'm one of the older ones here. <laughs> but, uh, well, I think I bring along quite a lot of experience. I, I'm, 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 I'm one of the core coders behind the IPNFT protocol. I'm building lots of front stuff in Molecule. And... Um, have been working the last three years deeply in Web3 and the EVM ecosystem, so building smart contracts, NFT collection, all that stuff. Actually, also have been uh, one one of uh, one of the finalists of ETH, ETH Online uh, 21 um, with an uh, with an NFT protocol called Splice. Um, and I'm yeah very happy to 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 be on this podcast and brag a little bit about uh, the technical backgrounds of IP NFTs because I think this is what 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 many developers out there, particularly and maybe even DAO developers are pretty curious about, right? So how, how is that working under the hood and why is it maybe from some perspective quite complex and why isn't it for this? Cool, cool. And um, yeah, we can get like into, um, you know, why why a developer w would care or like, like to build on this, but let's maybe start with um, speaking a, l a little bit about the potential advantages you looked at when choosing between ERC721 one one five five three five two five for base primitives. Uh sure. 
So um, I think the last one you mentioned is the one that's that's most exciting, and we are not using it, but I definitely want to mention that. It's called 3525 Semi-Fungible Token Standard. It's rather new. It's actually a, a final standard as an ERC, and um, we started looking into it um, when our friends over at Protocol Labs were, were considering using those for hyperserts. And um, it's actually a standard that allows you to fractionalize um, ERC721 tokens not really fractionalizing them, actually. It's, it's more like uploading value to your C721 tokens. And this is why we thought in the, in the first place, like like last October, November, that it might be a good idea to use this kind of um, um, blockchain primitive to, to model IP NFTs. But then we actually thought, uh, we actually evaluated the, the gas costs coming along if you really fractionalize uh, using ERC3525 and we noticed that gas costs during fractionalization events might be very high if you fractionalize, if you fractionalize them a lot. And this is why we actually rolled back um, to ERC-1155 as Hypersearch did as well. So Hypersearch also at the same time rolled back their code base to ERC-1155, um, uh, the, the multi-token uh, standard, which is pretty well known in the NFT space. It's pretty gas efficient. It allows you to fractionalize, not really fractionalize, but to, to, to create more, um, uh, more tokens of one token kind, which was our first idea of how we could fractionalize IP NFTs. Um, so, no secret told, but we are actually not using ERC-1155 to, to refractionize something. We're only using this as our base standard to to make IP, IP NFTs possible. It has uh, definitely more security features than ERC-721, and it got quite a lot of extensions that, that make it suitable for, for tr to, to, to react on transfer events, for example. And this is why we, in the end, uh, chose that standard for, for all IP NFT um, stuff. We could actually also have chosen ERC-721, the very plain one. Um, but now it is like it, like it is, and there are not, not, not really many trade-offs. There actually more, um, there's, there's more potential when, when, when you have 55 at hand because you can come up with pretty weird ideas of, I don't know, issuing an IP NFT several times. I don't exactly know if this really makes sense, but if it would make sense, we are prepared to, to use that one, actually. Hmm. Yeah, Stefan, I think if I remember correctly, you did a direct gas analysis. And I think what you found was, I think there was a four to five X gas cost associated with 3525 over 1155. And I think that was kind of the nail in the coffin um, for, for 3525 for us. Yeah, it's also about the usability, right? Because no wallet out there or no, no standard software would actually support the display of 3525 values. The, the nice thing about 3525 for everybody who's maybe curious and wants to look that up, I can tell you what was really what's really great about that standard is that it, at its core, it's behaving like an ERC721. So this is like a standard NFT, but as I said, it, it, it's, it's like, like, a, like, like, a, like a purse NFT. So it, it can contain value, and that value is not denominated in any sense. So it's just some number on it, and you can ah. transfer values between NFTs, which is super cool, but it's not exactly matching our use case, right? And this is why we've all decided to, to dismiss it. From a gas perspective, yes, exactly. So if you uh, if you would like, um, so everybody who, who would like to have um, a fraction in his wallet of this IP NFT, and we would have used thirty five twenty five. Um, and let's say we might have fractionalized to towards one thousand users or so. The gas prices are minting one thousand ERC seven twenty one tokens, and this is hilariously expensive, right? And this is why we in the end came up with, okay, guys, we cannot do that. Uh, let's just do it differently. Awesome, awesome. And um, for those who were around in just before Christmas last year, we launched the IPNFT V2. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if you guys can maybe touch on what are the prerequisites and why did you decide to go with mint passes and reservations for V2? Um, as for mint passes and reservations, I think what we were thinking there was you know, we're releasing this in kind of like a closed beta. We're looking for feedback from users. We're trying to understand how people are actually using the protocol. And so the best way to do that is have some slight control over um, who's actually using it, um, just to make sure that you have some sort of like mode of communication to them. Um, you know, we really value user feedback. And so um, if you release this kind of open source protocol and kind of let anyone use it, then you have no way to get that feedback and understand how are things meeting people's needs how are they not you know of course we have our discord which you know we want people to drop into but just making sure that we have some sort of line of communication to the people using it um was super important to us um and then another thing is you know the nfts that are created from the protocol uh persist on chain forever and so we just wanted to make sure that you know nothing inappropriate or spammy was was um 
used for it. But yes, I think the long-term goal is to remove, you know, all sort of friction and permission required to use the protocol and, and completely make it permissionless. Precisely. So um, you must imagine um, the mandate of IPNFT is brought along by by the minter. So they can bring along whatever they want, actually. You cannot, you cannot uh, validate that on-chain, right? So you have to trust the one who is minting an IPNFT that the metadata is correct. And uh, I mean, I cannot, <laughs> if you want this um, to have um, more or less permissionless, um, you have to ensure that people are not uploading anything that's 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 not valid. And I cannot really validate that in a permissionless system. But what I can do, I can gate the access to the mint method um, and tell them, okay, before you just hit the mint button, maybe it's a good idea to call us first, at least read the documentation and get that mint pass. So uh, you have at least, well, uh, proven that you that you at least have, have read the docs, right? So otherwise you would have, wouldn't have get, get the, got uh, the mint pass in the first place. This is our little gating um, to avoid spam or, or <laughs> useless stuff on, on, on the protocol. Um, it's a little bit hard to, to shut it off, as I said, because you cannot really validate the, the uh, metadata that people bring along um, on chain. So we have to trust our minters a little bit. But um, yeah, it's, it's rather simple to, to, to obtain a mint pass. You just uh, drop, drop a line on our forum and we're issuing one, one uh, free for you. At the moment, who is the ideal user for the mint pause? Like, who would you give a mint pause to? Um. I think one of the coolest parts about just being a, you know, having an open source protocol is people come and use it that you would never have expected to. Um, and so, you know, we have some people that are building similar protocols for different applications. So, you know, whereas, you know, our primary use case is doing patents and patent licenses for pharmaceutical products. Um, you know, we had someone come through and, and they're currently, we're, we're messaging them. They are trying to tokenize um, copyright um, copyrights associated with media and video and music. And so, you know, it's very analogous and similar to our use case, um, excuse me, our, our um, implementation, but a completely different use case. So I thought that was super interesting. So, you know, we have our biases as who, as to who we want the protocol. We want scientists and researchers who want to fund research and, and tokenize those rights to, to use the protocol. That being said, there are completely different applications and users that, you know, we never mm. would have guessed, but it's awesome to get their feedback just to learn from them as well um, and see kind of the convergent evolution that so many different protocols are forming um, because, you know, everyone's kind of thinking the same way. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's exciting that people are wanting to use it beyond just uh, biotech. So, um, you yeah, excited to see where that's going. Um, maybe moving on to storage and IPNFT metadata. Where is the metadata stored um, and how is the metadata structured? That's actually, particularly for developers, the the most pressing question, right? So, what, what, where is the value coming from, and how, 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 how does an IPNFT become an IPNFT? And uh, honestly, it becomes IPNFT by following a certain metadata structure that's actually um, open sourced. Um, the code itself isn't open source yet, but uh, the complete documentation is is to be found on the molecule docs, so you can see the whole schema, how an IPNFT metadata um, should be crafted uh, on our on our documentation page. And um, this is exactly where where the IPNFT becomes unique. So metadata, uh, IPNFT metadata contains links to uh, legal documents, to the research agreement or joint developer agreement and the assignment agreement that are actually defining the um, the the legal requirements why the IPNFT gains value in the end, right? So it is describing um, the, the legal implications in the real world. And um, we are outlining that uh, along a JSON schema so people who are following that JSON schema um, will be able to to prove to others that this is a valid IPNFT, and others can 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 read those 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 documents. Um, but what's also very interesting is where the data is stored, and um, we actually started off storing that on Arweave because it's a persistent blockchain-based um, storage system. It's very permanent. Um, from an end user's perspective, it's it's slightly hard to use because you need some kind of Arweave wallet to really interact with that if 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 you want to do it permissionlessly. And um, it, it, it's great. So, so we actually wanted to stick with that. But we know we actually. So we all have a background in IPFS and protocol apps. Protocol is, is is even very good friends with with Molecule. Um, and actually, it doesn't really matter to end users if it's stored on Arweave on IPFS on any other storage system. 
And um, on IPFS, things are slightly simpler and it's, of course, completely um, uh, non-economical, right? So you don't have to bring any money along to store something in IPFS, whereas it's not perma permanent then. Um, but what 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 we are using right now is Web3 Storage, which is a sub-protocol, or it's actually a product of Protocol Apps that allows you to, to store things in IPFS and um, even get um, Filecoin uh, mining deals. So uh, what, IP, what, what, what our front-end is doing it's uploading um, the, uh, the metadata that people assemble on our meeting frontend, and then it's um, storing that metadata JSON structure on IPFS using Web3 Storage. In the background, um, all, the, all this content is automatically pinned by Web3 by Web Storage, and this means it's actually persisted um, quite securely on protocol app side. But at the same time, they're also dealing uh, or they're, they're creating a Filecoin deal. And if this one's settled, you can actually guarantee that, that the data is persistent for a certain amount of amount of time, usually 30 years or something. And this is why um, if, if you're using those convenience protocols like Web3 Storage, um, you can be pretty sure that everything is as persistent as it's on Arweave. And we didn't see the real need to use Arweave. But just, just one thing. Um, it should be up to the IPNFT user on where data is stored. So we are not really forcing anybody to store something like IPFS. If you want to craft an IPNFT and, and you think that Arweave is, is the better permanence um, solution for you, you can just do that. Our front end is supporting uh, IPFS and Arweave links as well if you have the, if, if you, if, if you have the right uh, gateway. And for all the tech savvy among you, using Arweave directly, uh, as you might know, is also not that simple <laughs> um, because even the latency between putting data into Arweave and getting it out can take quite a while. So we as Molecule team um, use Bundler to, to, to get around that, which is an absolutely awesome tool to, to, to very quickly upload or persist data on Arweave and get it out uh, right in the same second again. And it also allows uh, users to pay for persistent storage in any kind of ERC20 token. Um, and this is actually something that we might consider bringing back to, to our front end. This is actually not really usable for, for end users, uh, at least not for those who are not really um, into Web3 because you have to bring along, I don't know, DAI or UTC or something. But if you do that, you can actually store something on Arweave using this ERC20 token, which is super brilliant. It's absolute permissionless if you do that and you're not relying on Web3 storage, however it's, however it's called. Um, this is why it might make sense to bring it back, but at the moment we're definitely just using IP. We're pretty plain IPFS actually in our front end. Um, Siobhan, do you want to talk about a little bit about what kind of separates? So, if IPFS is you know the best solution out there for decentralized storage, um, understanding you know not necessarily the difference between IPFS and Arweave, but the difference between IPFS and your insert your cloud storage provider here, you know Google Cloud, AWS. Um, Azure, like what separates right now in terms of upload and download times, you know, cost, um, reliability, all these different parameters you would care about as a developer, what yeah. separates IPFS from these web two cloud storage providers? First of all, I think this is a big misunderstanding for many people who are pretty new to that space. IPFS is not really a storage protocol. Um, uh, the, the acronym results to an interplanetary file system. It feels like a file system, but it's not really persisting anything. IPFS is actually just a distribution protocol that allows people to exchange data with with with, with each other. So somebody, for example, Heinrich is uh, announcing data on his machine, and he he, he sends over some kind of um, let's call it a hash value, which is not ex exactly a content hash, but it it looks like one, and he sends that hash value to me, and my computer is connecting to the IPFS peers. And they will try to find a path between my computer and his computer and access the binary data that he was uploading in a sense. It's not really uploading, it's publishing in a sense. And um, this makes IPFS itself not really a, p a permanent network. It's, it's just just distribution network, right? And if you compare that to S3 or to, to other cloud providers or cloud storage providers, what, what they are offering, they're offering you some kind of guaranteed persistence, right? If you pay money to AWS, they are more or less guaranteeing that 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 your content is there. The content gets gets a unique URL. You can get it from there. You have some access controls or something. Um, but the guarantees are, of course, only go, they only go that far as AWS is still alive. And and I think AWS is not gonna gonna go down anytime soon, I guess. But of course, um, well, you you're paying uh, Jeff Bezos and and his crew to to store data somewhere. This is not really decentralized, right? It's, it's Amazon owns your data in a sense. With IPFS, you you get your data back a little bit because it's actually stored on your machine. Now you have the problem: how do you have this data forever? And then you come up with ideas like Arweave, for example, which are um, putting blocks in some kind of a blockchain, or putting putting data blocks in some kind of blockchain-related uh, data structure. 
and they can actually guarantee that some blocks uh, survive um, uh, long term. So they, this this data is gonna stay available. Um, and I'm not I'm not really a deep expert in in Arweave. I know my way around Filecoin pretty well. Um, Filecoin is is giving another kind of guarantee to to users that data is permanent. They are using zero knowledge proofs of snarks to to preformat hard disks on those so-called uh, Filecoin storage miners. And storage miners can actually prove they can give you a cryptographic proof that they really have um, stored a certain um, uh, block of the data you you told them to to, to store. Okay. And uh, this makes Filecoin, from my perspective, it's really complex under the hood. But from my from from my perspective, Filecoin really solved a major problem: the problem of persistence, the the actually the problem of of provable persistence in a decentralized way. This is a super great achievement. I don't know if many people are aware of that, but this makes like it. You can really compare Filecoin to S3 in a sense, but you can say if you understood how IPFS is working, you can just uh, close or settle um, a Filecoin deal with a, with a Filecoin miner, um, and then you can rest assured by, by proving cryptographically that your um, content is stored um, for a certain amount of time. And this is what S3 from Amazon, for example, you can use any kind of uh, remote or cloud storage provider. They, of course, guarantee you something um, in the boundaries of the SLAs. So they say, yeah, we are we have an uptime of, I don't know, 99.997% or something. But they cannot guarantee that there is some fire breaking out in their computing center and they're losing the artists. Uh, and Farcoin can guarantee that by shifting around the, the permanent content between their peer-to-peer -peer or the, the Farcoin miners that are connected peer-to-peer. -peer. So I wouldn't say that this is really better or better usable or much faster or whatever it is. But we are still very early here, right? So the the whole idea of, of the Filecoin network is to 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 give the same guarantees as S three or Dropbox or all those providers can give you today, but in a decentralized way. And this is what 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 makes them a perfect choice from for a for Web three startup or Web three protocol like like Molecule. Um, I actually, I, I do have a quick question, um, and we don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but you did mention zk proofs. Do you see zk proofs being applicable to any of the work that you know occurs in the molecule ecosystem or the IPNFT protocol specifically? Yeah, I don't, I don't really. I mean, what zero knowledge proofs are allowing you is proving some kind of uh, statement that you know, without telling anybody else what that statement is, and uh, this is always very. <laughs> Oh my God, this is super abstract, right? So for, <laughs> for everybody who's not really familiar with this kind of technology, but what it can basically do with that uh, in a KYC perspective, for example, right? So if, if you, Benji, um, uh, so maybe we, we don't know each other, right? And you say, well, I'm a US citizen and you want, um, uh, so I'm building a protocol as a German saying, I want that, um, that, um, I want that, that only people from a Western country may use my protocol. Now, zero knowledge proofs, uh, or from a, from a, from a, from a bird's perspective, they allow you um, to to prove to me that you, the citizen of a of a Western country, I don't even know which one that is, but you can securely cryptographically prove that you are. Of course, this um, requires you to have somebody creating a claim for you, where uh, that that actually claims that you are a U.S. citizen. And now the hard part here is deriving that zero knowledge proof above that statement. And creating a proof that's provable um, by another party like me um, in a in a non-disclosing way, and um, what what uh, Vitalik and others are actually doing on on, on blockchains, they make those zero knowledge proofs provable on blockchains, and this allows like super interesting uh, use cases because you can actually prove things to smart contracts, and um, uh, you for, so in the molecular ecosystem, there could be hard requirements that some people have to prove that they are an accredited investor for certain kind of use cases. So you must imagine if, if some people want to invest their money into patents on chain, you can imagine if those are real world patents or this is real world, um, um, uh, those are real world entities, you cannot just like go the native Web3 way. You have to have some kind of relationship with the real world. But on, in Web3, you want to protect the privacy a little bit at least. And what, uh, what what you can achieve using zero knowledge proofs or snarks, uh, particularly, you can actually um, uh, ask them to create a proof over their humanity or over their um, attribute of being an accredited investor and proving uh, and and, disp and, and um, um, presenting that this proof to our smart contract. And that smart contract can only prove one thing: this is an accredited investor. I don't know who he is, I don't know where he comes from, whatever it is, but it can cryptographically prove that this is really an investor we want to trust and um, well act um, accordingly whatever that means so this is more or less one of our core use cases um and on the other hand you can actually also uh, craft zoonotic proofs um for example to to 
to, to gain access to certain kind of data. So if people um, attach data to IPNFTs, for example, or if they only want certain, let's say, fraction holders of IPNFTs want to have this data uh, accessible, they can actually ask them to create a zero-knowledge proof that just shows that they are a valid um, investor. Nobody knows how many fractions they have. Nobody knows where they're living. Nobody, nobody knows um, um, if they ever invested before or something, but they are verifiable investors on the protocol. And this is why they might enjoy access to certain kind of data. Um, Stefan, I'd also love for you and maybe you as well, Benji, if you've thought about how you guys are using or thinking about content gating specifically with the DAO tools that Molecule is building. Yeah, I can I can take that. So, you know, it is it is rather complicated, especially because of the field we're in, which is biotech. And if you go and look at how, you know, data is protected in, in the biotech space um, outside, you know, the Web3 ecosystem, just in traditional biotechnology fundraising and running pharma companies, it's their most valuable asset um, besides patents. So, you know, patents don't derive their value alone it's really the additional data that comes and supports the value of those patents that you know creates this actual valuable data package and so you know more often than not almost exclusively um what becomes the moat of a pharma company with ip is the data that's attached to that ip as well and so they guard that you know with a you know we call them walled gardens but you know it's the exact opposite of decentralized science it's it's valuing privacy over collaboration um, to the extreme and so you know we don't necessarily want to jeopardize that because it's important that you allow people to um, continue to hold the data in a privacy preserving manner that allows the ip to remain strong and and accrue value and you know just purely opening open sourcing data is is not going to accomplish what we want, which is increased collaboration. And so the, one of the ways we're thinking about, um, you know, kind of threading this needle in a more sophisticated way than is currently being done is by e increasing the frictionlessness of signing NDAs. So kind of like Stefan was talking about with fractionalized IPNFTs, which we can get into more of, but the idea of having joint ownership over IP rights enables us to um, distribute patent rights or patent license rights, correct? Um, but what it doesn't necessarily do is um, say, okay, we can trust this person to not steal data if they get access to it. So it's only it's only one level of gating. Another level of gating is, is NDAs. And as Stefan was alluding to, you need to actually understand someone's identity and personhood to genuinely sign a non-disclosure agreement or, or confidentiality agreement. Um, and this is just because like, you know, what what is an NDA with a wallet? Um, if you have no idea who, who the person behind it is. And even then, even if you do have the person's identity and their promise to keep information confidential, um, if someone's halfway across the world where, you know, confidentiality isn't um, enforced, um, you know, how are you gonna go get them or find them? So, you know, it really is something we're going to have to figure out. I, I, I do believe that there's some sort of protocol that we can develop where, you know, all fraction holders or all owners of the IPNFT can say, oh, this person has the resume or they have the credentials or they, they've, they've proven that they can add value to biotech. And so we're going to give them data access coming with the addition of a, an NDA, et cetera. But there is going to be, need to be several gating layers in order to increase data access. That being said, um, we we are trying to move in that direction and, you know, hopefully we don't get it wrong. And, um, you know, we, we definitely want to miss on the safe side. But at the same time, our goal is to promote decentralized science, to get more people involved in valuable data and extracting value from it for communities. And so we do need to figure out what is the optimal data access protocol um, for the data that's coming out from IPNFTs. Yeah, Stefan, exactly. you've looked quite a bit into or currently using Lit protocol at Molecule. Can you speak maybe a little bit about the role that Lit is playing um, in the IPNFT at the moment? Absolutely. 
So if you if you talk about content gating, and this is what we're currently talking here, I mean, many people know that from from uh, the usual NFT space, right? So if you if you have some kind of certain PFP, you might gain access to I don't know a music video or something, whatever it is. Um, it's it's more or less exactly the same question. It's it's like if you want to decentralize this concept, you have to encrypt content somehow, right? Because otherwise, everybody would just be able to access it, and. Uh, <laughs> Good luck thinking about this one. How do you encrypt data in a decentralized ecosystem and how do you keep that encryption key safe? This is actually not tr not a trivial question, right? So where does that encryption key live? And um, Lit Protocol um, has solved this problem using uh, threshold cryptography and MPC, so multi-party computation. What they are building is a, is a network of nodes that allows you um, to store fractions of any kind of thing and particularly of, of encryption keys. So um, one of the most simple use cases to explain here is that an IPNFT, as I mentioned before, um, or the metadata of an IPNFT points to certain legal documents. And one of those, at least one of those documents is encrypted. And it's actually encrypted on the minter's computer. So the one who is meeting that IPNFT is encrypting that PDF document representing the legal document. Um, on his machine. And of course, at that point in time, the encryption key lives on his machine, right? So, but it's still only at, on, the, on that Minter's box. And what, what, what they are doing, they are asking the LIT protocol to encrypt this key um, and store it. Now, you must imagine this doesn't work like he's sending that key to the LIT protocol. No, no. He's sending parts of the key to certain nodes in the LIT protocol. So no node at all, uh, no node of them knows the whole key. Those lit protocol nodes then um, create um, a secret on their side or fragments of secrets. And um, this is just to create that encrypted symmetric key, how we call it, right? So it's it's just an encrypted symmetric key that will, once you once you want to decrypt that, this will, will be able to decrypt the content. Now, if you want to decrypt that, you have to prove that you fulfilled some kind of uh, condition on chain. And in our case, this is pretty simple, is actually, do you own the IP NFT? If you own the IP NFT and you can prove that you own it, then we are giving you the, this, uh, this uh, symmetric encryption key. Now, this is the, the another, another magic in the LIT protocol. All those LIT protocol nodes observe chains. So you can have an access control condition. This is what we also attach to our metadata and say, okay, everybody who's owning that IP NFT, which is usually just one party at a time, um, may get the decrypted symmetric key. And uh, as soon as somebody, maybe the IPNFT holder, is, is requesting the LIT protocol to decrypt that um, encrypted symmetric key that's attached to the metadata, they'll check if their current wallet is actually holding the IPNFT. If it does, all of the nodes respond with fragments of the private key to the current requesting user. And on their machine, that symmetric key is reassembled and they can decrypt the content. Those are actually the, the both uh, the, the 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 larger building blocks of Lit Protocol that that we are using. There's much more um, uh, to 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 evaluate at Lit Protocol. They they can do many more interesting things with that. For example, keeping private keys um, or, or the contract controlled um, uh, how's it called NFT controlled uh, private keys, so you can actually control or you can actually issue or sign. Uh, chain transactions using NFTs that you own, which is a super awesome idea. We are actually not not using this one, but uh, Lit and allows us in a nutshell to to store secrets safely in a decentralized way without disclosing this key to anybody but the parties who are involved. It really sounds like dark magic, honestly. And the fact that you can get the necessary decryption key from you know a certain percentage of the nodes. It just like it, it almost makes no sense like like how is that pot like from a mathematical perspective it you know it's it's incredibly complex like i i, I still don't understand it and just you know like of many things just take the developer's word for it but it, it really is incredible i still think at the at the core they are they are using very well-known um encryption primitives that have been developed during the last 20 years so this is not really magic what makes them i mean if you now start thinking okay but at some point in time they have to i don't know reassemble the key somehow how are they storing that and what they're actually using is sgx or intel sgx extensions on their servers so all the computation that's needed to create those key fragments is executed um in secure in secure memory on um, um, enclaves which means i mean <laughs> nobody I, I don't know how, how advanced the nsa is today but <laughs> 
but it's very, very hard to break into those SGX and clouds. This is like secure computing. And this is what they're offering as a service in a sense, right? Um, it's, it's an amazing protocol, I would say, and it's solving so many secret keeping problems in web free space that I would definitely urge anybody who's thinking about that kind of stuff to at least uh, read through their docs because they're really solving a major problem here. Talking maybe a bit about um, the front end and the technology behind the front end and, um, you know, what kind of tech you guys are using to to build that and from a user perspective, like what kind of wallets um, would a user need and yeah, what which wallets do you support at the moment? So everybody, I guess everybody who's, who's, who's using um, uh, Ethereum-related uh, blockchain technology will know the name MetaMask, right? Yeah. Everybody knows that there is a MetaMask wallet that's a browser extension. You can use that to create uh, private keys derived from a, from a seed phrase and so on and so on. You don't really have to understand the details. But after like six years of using MetaMask, we all know that using MetaMask is more or less a pain. And this is not exactly MetaMask's fault because MetaMask always has been, well, I would say it's, it's a tool that's supposed to be used by developers, but not by uh, the average John Doe, right? It's... It's it's cool. It's already making things pretty simple, but well, <laughs> there's of course a little break in onboarding MetaMask, getting your first ETH on it, swapping I don't know USDC or uh, US dollars into uh, an Ethereum uh, currency. Oh my God, you have to explain so many things, right? And this is why um, one of our upcoming tasks, like this, is not not uh, not 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 the first task we're currently working on, but we're definitely uh, going into that. Um, we also must, as Molecule Protocol, we also must make um, our fronted applications, for example, for IP NFT mentors, for the fractionalizers, for all the researchers, for our DAOs, we have to make it as accessible as possible to people who are not that deep into Web3. I mean, of course, Molecule is a Web3 company, so right, we more or less can expect that our users more or less know what a Web3 wallet is. But actually, if you think about the whole ecosystem huh. around the research DAOs, for example, I don't know, Athena DAO, I cannot expect that every user or, or member of Athena DAO really knows very deeply on of how MetaMask is working. And this is why we are definitely going to integrate other kind of wallet options, even wallet options that use um, federated, log federated logins, like uh, login with Apple, uh, face not, not really Facebook, maybe Google or, or some other login providers um, to, 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 to enable a much more fluid user interface. And of course, we're not building this on our own. So there are other solution providers, very similar ones like WebFreeAuth. They're pretty, pretty generic in, in building federated wallet logins using so-called MPC technology, multi-party computing again. So it, it, even this stuff is rather secure because um, nobody has this private key that's uh, derived from that wallet login. It's actually always split in three parts. Um, one part is owned by the protocol, one part is owned by the provider, like like uh, Web3Auth, and one part is owned by the owner. If any of us goes down or loses their part of the key, the other by both can reconstruct a new private key to access the data. This is how they most mostly work, which is also awesome technology. But um, from 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 Web3 um, native um, perspectives, this is maybe not exactly the technology that's going to be the breakthrough. It's, it's more or less a bridge. Um, because what also Vitalik is, is telling all the time right now and what's, what's the, ne the next hot stuff uh, is account-abstracted contract wallets. So if any one of you ever used multi-six like Gnosis, this is really the starting point of it. It's more like you prove to a contract that you own or that, that you are allowed to access it as a wallet. And this contract is actually your account. So you're not interacting directly with the chain anymore. So you don't have to store a private key. You only have to be able to create a proof to prove to a contract that it's the right you. And this contract is going to be your wallet. It, everything that's happening on chain is going to be issue or it's, um, um, uh, it's, it's going to be originated from that contract that you control. And the good thing about that thing is now that you can actually very easily rotate um, uh, access keys. So imagine if you are a MetaMask user and you lose access to your seed phrase, you lose access to everything. If you lose your seed phrase to somebody else, they have access to everything that you own. Um, and the only remedy to that is you must be able to rotate your credentials, right? So you have to change your password in a sense. This is absolutely not possible in MetaMask. So you, if you do that, you have to transfer all the stuff you own in MetaMask to, to some other uh, wallet you create. But with contract-owned wallets, you don't need to do that. You only have to tell the contract that you're rotating your keys now, and now you have a new password to the contract. And um, the the usability implications of contract-based accounts or abs account abstractions, sorry, account abstractions, 
they they are manifold. There are so many implications with this approach uh, of, of account management that that we absolutely cannot see where this is leading towards. But this is definitely the future. So I said the next step we are taking is definitely making logins or um, Web three interactions much simpler for our users by uh, integrating this kind of bridge technology um, um, federated wallet providers um, like Web three or stories, however they are they are called. But on the long run, we're definitely also going to support contract uh, wallets um, as, as first-class citizens in the Monaco protocol. Yeah, and I think it's often when we're you know building protocols or talking about potential user experience to be in our heads, oh, you know, they'll just make a MetaMask wallet and save their seed phrase and sign with their private key and you know and 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 load it up with ETH for for gas. And I think we just kind of overestimate people's willingness to you know, go through all of these steps. When people use our applications, we want it to feel like they're using any other Web2 app um, and abstract away as much of the backend rails as possible and the fact that it's on crypto. And so, yeah, would just like love to, you know, go into a little bit more depth about the importance of account abstraction because kind of like you mentioned, you know, there's no ability to recover your seed phrase if you lose it. And that's just anti-practical. Like it's just it's just not practical for um, what people are used to and what they're comfortable with, um, and so to be able to, you know, gate signing transactions on chain with logins to just your your typical Google, Discord, um, you know, Apple logins is is super powerful because you can recover those passwords if you lose them, and I think another piece that uh, is going to increase um, adoption to Web three and and you know molecules protocol specifically is on ramping so on you know basically the the gate between the fiat world and people's bank accounts and their on-chain wallets is you know it, it's it's a just another point of friction and you know it's very dependent on what country you're in you know which is the best provider to you know help you onboard crypto but that being said i mean anyone who's done it knows that's like a multi-week process to go from dollars in the bank account to USDC or ETH on your wallet. And so the ability to decrease the friction of that process and just have, you know, pay with your credit card and immediately have USDC in your wallet is, we're still a long way from there, but there are some really cool projects, one of which being Sardine, um, that is, is kind of innovating here. And ultimately like the, the most important number is like what the take rate is. So for every hundred dollars you want to put in crypto, you know, what percent fee do each of these services take? And making sure that you know we're constantly integrating with providers that have the lowest number possible is is where we like to play. But on the account abstraction side, um, you know, like one one piece where um, you know th there seem to be different design decisions is like between Web three auth and sequence. So sequences um, account abstraction they require you to sign a transaction on chain, which does cost gas because the the record has to be on chain. Um, for you to go deploy a wallet um, with your, you know, Google or Web2 login, basically. Um, but what's interesting is they're covering gas for layer two chains. And so I think this becomes another question of, you know, there is no like clear winner in the layer two space. I think if you go on and, and look at on-chain metrics, you know, a lot of them have adoption. Um, but ultimately, you know, if we want to build a DeSci ecosystem on layer twos, we all kind of have to agree to one and, you know, getting people to make decisions is always difficult, especially, um, because everyone has <laughs> positions in different, uh, tokens. So, you know, I, I guess, how do you think about layer twos and, um, you know, which is your favorite just selfishly and, um, you know, do, do you see us moving into a layer two to kind of like subsidize some of the gas costs and prevent users from paying them? Well, you can actually subsidize gas costs also on mainnet, but then actually we are getting getting poor. Um, <laughs> um, this is not 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 really rocket science. I think Open Zeppelin solved the gas station network in 2020 or so. So this is uh, very well understood. But well, it's yeah, it's not that simple. Um, but I just wanted to to get back to to one point you just mentioned. It this is actually. I think everybody more or less would be willing to, I don't know, create a seed phrase and a private key, whatever, in a MetaMask. This is what 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 you usually can explain to people. This is what they actually can do. What's really hard is they have to pay gas on Ethereum. This is exactly where the user where the user experience breaks. But unfortunately, gas is well. You need it, otherwise 
you cannot deal with chain congestion. This is why gas is absolutely mandatory. And uh, as I said, US molecule protocol, I think you would not do this on mainnet because this becomes very, uh, very expensive. And this is exactly why many people um, just move on to L2s. Now for all the listeners um, that, that don't really know what an L2 is, this is actually the, this is Ethereum's approach in uh, solving um, uh, scalability. It's more or less um, wrapping up new blockchains that somehow are anchored in a, on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a main blockchain. And in that case, obviously, Ethereum mainnet. Um, and the, the most prominent players of them are obviously Polygon. There's, there's Gnosis Chain. There's Arbitrum. There's Optimism. There are ZK rollups coming up, so-called. Uh, so, they, for example, ZK Sync is just rolling out, right? There's Starknet. There's Mina Protocol. And, the, and so on and so on. And um, they come with um, certain trade-offs in potentially security. And I don't know. Nobody's stealing your keys here, right? But it, it, it's, it, it is potentially they could maybe break down because they don't have as many nodes as uh, Ethereum has. This never happened, and usually this will never happen. But every time you move on to an L2, you're definitely making a trade-off for security of where you store your data. And this is why exact, this is exactly the right question. So which L2 are you going to use? Because you must make sure that this is going to be around in the next 10 years. And it's not losing your data. It's not like uh, dropping security. It's not like, I don't know... Uh, no, nobody can 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 um, can can change the data anymore. Those are all the guarantees that that you got from Ethereum mainnet. Those are not really guarantees on those chains because they are they they haven't reached the scale as Ethereum did. But um, still, you can consider them pretty safe because they they all come with their own safety measures. Um, you might lose a little bit on decentralization. But just to answer your question, so favorites. I mean, I don't really have a favorite. I I see some of those chains or of those uh, L2 networks coming up recently and they look very very promising and my personal favorite just to name one is optimism because optimism also is a pretty pretty deeply involved in public goods funding they also consider themselves a public good and they want to drive decentralization on scale in the ethereum ecosystem this is why i personally like the the optimism um approach very much but this is not really a technical thing this is more like like a personal i think those are cool guys thing I also love the Arbitrum people. If you, if you read the Arbitrum uh, documentation with Arbitrum Nova and Nitro, they really showed that they that they are ready for prime time. They 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 have extremely high scaling blockchain or L2 solutions that 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 um, derive uh, safety and security from Ethereum mainnet. This is awesome technology. And um, just to 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 close this, I I definitely think that that uh, molecule can can profit from 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 the scalability and from the uh, gas efficiency of those protocols for sure i think ip nfts always will reside on mainnet because they're representing a major value this could be billions of dollars that this one ip nft is uh, is worth but the whole fractionization stuff the the content gaining for certain peer groups or something this actually is definitely um a good example of what could be um factor out to an l2 network Awesome. Yeah, like I certainly um, am not an expert, but I wouldn't feel comfortable in putting hundreds of thousands of dollars on layer twos as of yet. So, um, yeah, sticking to the security of Ethereum because I know it's going to be around. Um, exactly. But you can be pretty safe, uh, particularly, I mean, getting stuff out from an uh, optimistic L2 still <laughs> takes up until a week. Oh. It depends, right? So it always depends on how this whole thing is uh, built, uh, which is a major trade-off, of course. And so trading stuff on that on the kind of uh, of that kind of chain, um, you lose a lot of usability if you really do that, and if you want to get in and out. If you just want to trade, uh, you have to 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 find an L two that um, has some kind of liquidity um, fundamentals. So if there is lots of money already on it. A Uniswap works as good on 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 optimism as it works on on mainnet actually, and uh, this is where it's actually very interesting. Like doing your swaps um, or your trading on L2 and bridge back from time to time. Maybe your 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 proceeds if you if you do any. Stefan, maybe a burning question from our community would be um, our open source strategy. So how and when they can start building on this and or put differently when SDK. When SDK, um, uh, <laughs> exactly. So our contracts are open source, so you can see them on our uh, GitHub um, organization, which is called Wallica Protocol. 
github.com slash molecule protocol. Um, this is, it's it's surprisingly not that much code because I mean, IP NFTs aren't like super magic technology, right? It's more or less an, uh, just an NFT with uh, the, the whole magic going on in the in the metadata actually. Um, so this is nothing that will blow your mind if you look into it, but all the stuff that's upcoming is gonna be developed inside that repository as well. So it's called the IP NFT repository. All the contracts we're currently building towards the ecosystem are gonna reside on that one. What we haven't um, out or what what we haven't open sourced so far, as said, at least not in code, is um, the metadata um, schema description, which we currently built in a TypeScript in Zod. Um, this is residing in our further repository, and there's a reason why this is not open sourced because the code is still a little bit preliminary. I think we're pretty good coders, but we have to fine-tune a little bit. Once we're done with our, uh, now this is a little spoiler alert, once we're finished with our V3 release, which is upcoming in the next two to three weeks, um, we're gonna open source this one as well. And then we have to restructure a little bit because now we have quite a bit of stuff living in that so-called front-end repository. And for all the developers among you who want really to, to just have an SDK that they can use to, I don't know, validate metadata they, they want to put in, into IPNFTs or maybe just interact with the lit protocol um, without really worrying about lit protocol, um, this is something we're gonna factor out of that repository and bring towards um, an, an NPM package that's gonna be installable by all your, by all your developers. So uh, in the end, you will definitely be able just to say, show me all the IPNFTs of this address. Show me all, all the IPNFTs of, of the currently logged in user. Show me the history of those. Um, uh, ungate the content, please. Here's an auth stick or something. This is what you will be able to do uh, using a Molecules SDK without really having to worry that much about Web3 technology. But actually, all the stuff that you need if you want to interact with IPNFTs already there. As I said, everything is verified and open sourced from the contract perspective, so you can just start building on it. You can use IPNFTs as a building block for your own protocol if you want. You can use them as a gating mechanism to gate your own data or your own, uh, I don't know, encrypted content if you want so. You don't have to ask us for, for doing so. You can just start it. Um, but if you if you are keen on writing like stuff on top or maybe writing DAO-dashboards or tools for, 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 for Gnosis safe wallets that interact with IPNFTs in a certain kind of way, you should maybe wait a little bit until we we, we release our our, our front-end code um, so, you, so you can see how we are actually building things. Stefan, Benji, thank you so much um, for allowing me to pick your brain. And um, yeah, to our audience, we hope you enjoyed it and that the podcast provided some insight into the next era of intellectual property and what IPNFTs can do. Um, and everything that's planned in Molecule and the IPNFT to come. So thank you for tuning in. We look forward to sharing more with all of you soon. Thanks. Thanks, guys. We love you all too, <laughs> Heinrich. See you. Ciao. Thank you. Thanks, Heinrich.